Thank you for listening to Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body. This is Episode 7, Lauren Jost, Theater as Human Education, Act 1, recorded July 17, 2016, at Courtney's apartment in Brooklyn, New York. So damn tired of waiting on a perfect A plus B. The one size fits all prudent kids all screaming about irrevocability. Let's burn some bridges, earn some stitches, and fight our own way free. Cause the rules don't lie, but they don't apply to people like you and me. Let's start it up now. 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 Now they say it's all decided, all divided, all laid out. And the pushcart man with a three-part plan can't understand what you're shouting about. But when the past they plow, the lives allowed are the only roads you can see. Just remember the walls were built to fall for people like you and me. Let's start it up now. 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 May. May can be a very nutty time uh, in my, my neck of the woods. We are rounding out a particular season and doing all the things to launch the next season. And it's just a lot of work, a lot of balls in the air. My organization is also celebrating 15 years of our New Victory Classroom Workshop Program, which, as you know, I talk a lot about. Um, But that means that it's also my 15th anniversary for working for this organization. And I frankly couldn't be more proud to work for an organization that has such high integrity and that I have something to do with that. The party was earlier this week, and the room was full of joy and love with the Teaching Artist Ensemble, and it was a strong mark for me, actually, that while we, we do good work in the arts, really good work in arts education, there's just still so much that we can do, so much further that this field can go and should go. And, as you may know, uh, but if you don't, I'm here to tell you that politically, (laughs) this federal uh, administration or government doesn't seem to value the arts as a civic and cultural right. In past episodes, you've heard me talk about arts advocacy and and, um, going down to D.C. in 2017 to advocate for the NEA budget um, to Congress members, and that was my first time, and I learned a great deal, Um, and so if you haven't listened to that uh, particular episode, Arts Advocacy Diaries, please do. Um, I I went again this year in 2018. Um, I posted a a little video from Capitol Hill um, giving you some insight to what I was about to do. 
Um, and that will be an upcoming episode where I'm actually having conversations. So it's not just diaries. It's conversations with um, different people who are uh, my colleagues and have different points of view. And I, it's a it's a good time, actually, one, to, for me to, to meet, you know, different people with, or work with uh, different people in the field that I wouldn't necessarily get an opportunity to work with. And then to hear more about their programs as we are advocating specifically to um, different Congress members about what's happening in their districts so that they, whether they're on the um, House Appropriations Committee or um, on the floor, they can be armed with data, armed with stories about how important the arts are and what the impact can be. Um, so look for that episode in the, in the future. Um, but some good news around that, uh, that the House Appropriations Committee for the FY19 budget proposal has passed a budget that includes $155 million for the NEA, which is um, uh, in direct uh, juxtaposition to what the administration, the White House ex- administration, had proposed in terms of slashing that budget entirely. Um, so while there's still a few more stages in this process, that is incredibly good news. And frankly, I am proud, very proud to be a small part of this process. So this leads me to think about our, our guest for this episode series, Lauren Jost. Lauren Jost is uh, the artistic director of Spellbound Theater Company. She is a theater maker, puppeteer, and teaching artist, and an all-around hardcore badass advocate. I said it. She speaks her mind, and she has a very strong voice in conversations and action-making around livable wages for teaching artists. You may have heard, and if you haven't, I recommend that you listen to a conversation between me, Lauren, and Penelope uh, McCordy, who uh, at the face-to-face conference last year were chatting after a panel that um, Lauren led around this topic of of livable wages. Um, So that was for the face-to-face episode for arts education learning, celebrating, advocating. So in this act, we hear about Lauren's journey into arts education, more specifically, her love for early childhood education, creative drama, and non-scripted work or devising. The way she talks about how theater can educate and help you grow as a human being reminds me of an op-ed article um, earlier this year about the dehumanization uh, uh, in the digital age and how theater can combat that. Um, So check that out. Um, Lauren is one of my very good friends and we have had many conversations into the wee hours of the morning over wine um, we don't get to do that so much cause, cause she's a mom and we're very, very busy, but this conversation, um, really captured a lot of those 
conversations uh, that we've had in the past. And so I'm very proud of this episode. I'm very proud of my friend. And I'm happy to introduce you to her. Um, So here is Episode 7, Act 1, Lauren Jost, Theater as Human Education. Hello, Lauren Jost. Hello, Courtney. How are you? I am great. Thank you for being here. I'm so excited. Welcome to Teaching Artistry. Thank you. That's the name of this. <laughs> I, it's a great name. Thank I think you. it's um, informative and direct. I appreciate that. I, it took a long time to figure out what mm. the title of this was going to be. And when we finally landed on it uh, and the web domain was available, we ran with it. It's just all coming together. Yeah, Magic. Definitely. Um, so I'm, I'm excited to have you over. It's a hot summer day. Mm-hmm. Ooh, it's been hot. Mm-hmm. Hot, hot, hot. Um, but we're going to be talking about, I'm going to be asking you a bunch of questions. Great. We're going to be talking about you and the work that you do as an artist, as a teaching artist and beyond. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, so let's, let's go way back. Way back. Okay. Uh, where did you grow up? I grew up in Pasco, Washington, which is part of the Tri-Cities in central Washington on the Columbia River. Got it. And um, tell us about your childhood in relationship to having the arts present in your life. Sure. So my community that I grew up in was uh, very small. It was half farm community and half nuclear reactor community. Um, So scientists and farmers um, and then all the people who taught their children and gave people checkups and that kind of community. It wasn't uh, attached to any urban center. And the closest city was Spokane, Washington, two and a half hours away. And then we were about four hours from Seattle. Mm -hmm. So there was not a regional arts center. There's no performing arts center nearby. Um, There are no museums in town except for one small science museum attached to the nuclear plant. Um, And if we wanted to see professional arts, particularly the performing arts, we would have to go to Spokane or Seattle. So um, my parents both grew up on Long Island and in New York, and either, neither of them are artists or musicians or really have any background in the arts. It was something that had been an important part of their upbringing, going in, coming into Manhattan and seeing uh, the ballet and the symphony and going to the Met. And so um, that was something that as a family, we they knew was important and that they valued. And even though we, they had moved to the middle of the desert, Um, we would go on road trips to Seattle and Spokane and Portland. And every time that we visited a city, we would check out the museums and go and see a performance. Um, so in my town, we might see the community theater performance. Um, but we would, we would have to leave town and and go away to see anything else. But we did that a lot. Mm. And did you have, you know, any arts teachers in school? Well, let me think. Was that a good sound for podcasting? Sure. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, the I did not do a lot of arts when I was in elementary school besides just the art cart teacher who would visit our classrooms. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was really interested in visual art, and I, that was always one of my favorite things to do was be doing painting and sculpture. And I remember in second grade I got a uh, – blue ribbon in the school art fair for the second grade. I drew a picture of a polar bear on vacation in Hawaii and that charmed the judges. And I got first place for my class. (laughs) Um, I 
just found the ribbon this summer. I still have it. What? <laughs> and so, and then when I was, uh, I guess probably in late elementary school, my mom would sign me up for summer art camp classes where I would go and do drawing classes or painting classes. Um, when I was in middle school, I joined the choir and band, um, and never really. And then I did piano lessons as well. I never really had much of a aptitude musically. But I liked the community aspect and all of my friends did it. And it was definitely the most fun part of the school day. Mm. Um, and then when I got to high school, I auditioned for the school play. That's well, how I got well, into theater. The, the first play that I was in was called Moon Girl. It was a really, um, <clears throat> really edgy piece about a young girl seduced by the... Uh, romantic uh, not not romance like um like i don't know men and women romance but mm -hmm. like kind of the uh, excitement i should say of um of a cult leader and she joined a cult and it was i was her sister and her family was trying to win her back it was really terrible it was one of those like <laughs> just tya high school play mm -hmm. scripts it was truly terrible but i had a blast doing it and all my friends were in it and mm -hmm. um after that i was in i think 12 shows in high school um, every show wow. I was in and all my friends were in it. That was, that's what we did. Um, do you have a memorable, like a, a, a sweet or exciting memory of any one of those trips that you would take, uh, to the urban centers? Yes. Um, we went to Spokane. We went to go see, um, Les Mis when it toured through the, the Limez Broadway tour when it came through Spokane mm -hmm. and it was the first time in the opera house there and seeing a show of that scale was the first time I'd seen a Broadway musical and it blew my mind I mean blew my mind um that was huge yeah. and we also we came to New York but it, it just in, re in relation just for that what when did you see that it was probably 11 or 12 so that was right like somewhat soon after then you started auditioning exactly and yeah and I remember seeing it and I never thought I could be an actor I thought well, I was too shy I thought mm. I'm really shy I wouldn't I could never be an actor and then after I saw that I was like well I could try <laughs> <laughs> and um just completely fell in love with that and we would um come to New York during the summers to see my parents families that mm. both still live in New York and New Jersey and um when I was 13 my mom took me to see the Phantom of the Opera on Broadway and it the, it's I, the same one that's on there right yeah yeah and I had been listening to the original cast recording for about two years straight had memorized every line of the show and was absolutely devastated when the curtain rose and I realized that it was not the original cast who was performing <laughs> and like cried through the whole first act because I was so disappointed that like Sarah Brightman wasn't going to be on stage singing for me <laughs> but the spectacle won me over yeah. and it was a wonderful experience nonetheless. I remember I've not seen Phantom of the Opera. I have to admit is not of interest to me for some reason, but the first time I saw Les Mis or the first and only time I saw, it, well, that's not true. I got a little obsessed. So I watched many concert videos of mm, it, yeah. but um, the first time I saw Les Mis was after college, but I had been listening to Les Mis, the, the soundtrack 
since my freshman year and I was like what is this my parents had seen it but I just wasn't I wasn't as big on musical theater I was right. very like into plays mm-hmm. and reading plays but not musical theater as much although I saw a lot but when I saw Les Mis I had no idea I didn't really fully understand because the only thing I knew was the soundtrack right I didn't yeah. realize it was sung all the way through mm. so once I understood that because I was like where's the dialogue what's happening oh and it w- it was tremendous, like moved yeah. to a place where like then I got completely obsessed and sought out everything that I could. It's a great musical. Mm-hmm. I we we saw Le Mis, I think I've seen it three or four times, and usually now it's because my my mother in law and my mother both love it above all other musicals, and mm-hmm. so they. You know, I think my mother-in-law has seen it 10 times. And every time she comes to New York, she's like, okay, just one more time. Um, so we go along with that. But mm-hmm. for as cheesy and, I don't know, just kind of, uh, I've, you've seen it so many times. It's like, it, it's kind of a... I don't know. It's just it's a it's kind of formula in the, in the way that it is. It's very the characters are so dramatic and mm. archetypal and and yet like every time I sit there I, I I start crying by the end of the first act. I'm like, why don't I see more musicals? I love this show. I agree. I feel it's the same great. way. I and there's show. only been a few musicals that when I see them, I'm like, this is why I yeah. do what I do. So Les Mis, I had, I just graduated with theater degree, had never seen Les Mis, mm-hmm. and fi- and so my father was like here are some tickets. Like I got a weekend stay. I saw the King and I with, um, mm. Marie Osmond and mm-hmm. whoever the person was, I forget who it was. And, um, they miss. So, ugh. um, that, uh, wicked, mm. wicked. I, I, you know, I saw that just in the last couple, I've, like I've five years or so. No. I was like, what? Yeah. Like musically, da da da. Lion King when it was like earlier on, oh, not yeah. now so much, but because I got to see it a second time randomly, and I was like, oh, it seems tired. But when mm. I saw it the first time, I was like, what? I never. I'm as a as an artist, I I have not been that interested in musicals. Like I enjoyed being mm-hmm. in the High School Musical. I yeah. had a lot of fun. I was in Bye Bye Birdie. I was in Fame. <laughs> Although, in the town that I was in, we had to edit out all references to sex or drugs, which yeah. Did not I was make in fame hair. A very interesting musical. Exactly. Yeah. I was in hair, and they said it was a student-run production, mm-hmm. and they were like, "It can be an hour," and so we had to cut out pretty much everything. And obviously, we weren't naked at any given point. Right. But we ended up somehow they slipped back in the like LSD song. I forget which one that was, where we were like literally like just writhing around on each other. It was amazing. <laughs> and I, I mean, there's so much fun to be in, but I don't. I don't spend a lot of money going to see musicals mm. on Broadway because they're, um, the, you know, there's a lot of them that are just not that good. But the ones that are, are transcendent. Yeah. I mean, there's just nothing, there's nothing like it. No, I mean, for there's me right like now, I, the last two that I've seen that like, have, I mean, I've seen a few recently, but Hamilton Oh, well, and that's a nice class of its own. It's a, yeah. yeah. And um, the color, this this version of the uh, mm-hmm. the color purple, which is so good. Yeah. But but that that to me, you know, what you said about like there's this community aspect. There's, mm-hmm. um, which I feel like in high school I didn't quite find. I found I felt it more in in college. But like there's this community. This is ensemble feeling. Mm-hmm. The idea that, that your friends and you guys can have fun, but mm-hmm. also. There's something, and then this version of like I'm too shy versus like, I, but that doesn't that doesn't matter. Like you, can, anybody could be on stage, yeah. and 
um, all parts are like super important to the telling of a story. Yeah. Storytelling is important. The medium can be, you know, either a play or a musical or other means and mediums. And so, um, you know, I, I've always, I've always been a little bit like confused by your family because you always talk about people here, but I didn't realize that both your parents were from New well, York. Yeah, both my parents are from New York, but oh. I, we never lived, they moved to the West Coast so before I was born. Why did, why did they move to the West Coast? Uh, my dad was a nuclear engineer. Oh, so, it was so he the worked job. at the reactor there. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. And they also, my parents are not city people. They like coming to the city for the arts and culture with a capital Mm -hmm. A and capital C, but they are not comfortable in the city in the same way that that Zach and I are. They really, they, they, um, both, I think really wanted to be in a place with a lot more space and nature. Mm -hmm. They both, they camp a lot. They prefer to be more outdoors. I find that so fascinating. First of all, I've been to the West coast. I've been to Seattle and it confuses me. It confuses me so it's beautiful there and it's gorgeous like the west coast is gorgeous mm-hmm. northern northwest but the people confuse me the the way the energy confuses mm-hmm. me because i'm such an east coast person yeah. so you now having you know grown up in the west coast mm-hmm. in nature in you know a small town with parents from new york and then having visits here but now having lived here for how long uh, 11 years, 11 years. Mm-hmm. And you have two awesome kids. I do. I do. Um, wh- what do you, wh- what do you think is the difference between your upbringing and your kids upbringing? And, and, Whew, yeah. and, and uh, to be fair, like, let me put the bracket on that, that it's about the arts yeah, and, mm-hmm. and perhaps other things that I can't quantify. So I think that, um, I think there's also just a huge difference between growing up in the 80s and growing up mm. now um, in terms of the amount of freedom that we had in the 80s and that we would just we could run around and you know we lived by the river and I would just disappear for hours at a time and I and looking back my problems my parents probably knew where I was but it felt at the time like they didn't I don't think my kids have that feeling mm. in the city um, but it, especially in terms of the arts, I'm very aware of the fact that my kids are growing up knowing artists, that most of my friends are working professional artists in lots of different art forms. And they grow up not only seeing the performing arts and seeing visual arts and music um, and you're listening to music, but they also know a lot of people who make and create the arts. Mm -hmm. And so that for them is just a given. It's not, it's not even special. It's just like, of course, of course we're going to go to see a show and I'm going to know half the people in the cast because I know everybody who makes TYA in New York and like any show I'm going to bring them to, they're going to know half the people in the cast. And right. if not the people in the cast, then probably the people in front of house. Mm-hmm. And that's just part of their world that it's very familiar and comfortable. And um, I think that they have a, at their ages, especially at five and seven have a much, much, much more expansive uh, arts vocabulary than I had at that age um, and and are more aware of their own po- uh, potential f- as artists and who, what kinds of jobs that they might have or what kinds mm. of activities they might want to do in the arts and I that was something that I just I came to much 
more into my adolescence mm-hmm. than in my early childhood. Yeah. I would say I didn't even know anything about like beyond what you could do on stage until college. Yeah. Because I wasn't in a ton of, of shows in, in high school um, and like one show in, in um, middle school and a bunch. But like, you know, in elementary school, you don't you're not you don't know what's going on, really. No. <laughs> so so like the the, the kind of arts vocabulary that you're talking about, that's really fascinating to right. me because I hadn't really thought about it. And everybody that I know who is an artist and has have kids, their kids themselves just inherently have artistic ways mm-hmm. that are cultivated and fostered by them right. and nurtured through the parenting um, styles I, I find. And then right. there's the circumstances of the fact that, you know, we, we go to the galleries, we go to the theater, we go to places that, mm-hmm. and there's a lot, maybe there's a lot more, would you say that there's a lot more um, oppor- op- options there's in more terms of kid friendly. There's more opportunities and, they're just there's a lot more diversity in the type of art that they mm. saw. Like, like I fell in love with musical theater because of Lemes and Phantom of the Opera and My Fair Lady that I right. watched on repeat on VHS. Yeah. And those are Annie. you know these these are not like uh, really kooky off the wall avant garde no. arts experiences. <laughs> it was pretty mainstream mm-hmm. stuff. And and my kids have a much more um, nuanced idea of what performing arts is what theater is what painting is mm. um you, you know i didn't really know that there was anything of painting beyond like i think the, the impressionists were kind of weird and, and other than that i didn't really understand a lot whereas my daughter at four years old was telling me all about jackson pollock and how he made his art and like the different techniques he would use for flicking the brushes and how she made a jackson pollock painting at preschool <laughs> and then we went to the moma and she's like sitting in front of a jackson pollock and explaining it to it to all of the like you know, other museum visitors <laughs> and just her comfort in understanding different art forms and comfort in explaining it to other people. And it's just, it's such a different realm. Than, it is. It is. I, under, I mean, I as a of. kid, I would have loved to have a place like the new victory. Yeah. I mean, the fact that it didn't start until I, I was done with college mm-hmm. <laughs> that, um, kind of makes me a little sad, but, um, well, at the New Victory, even they've seen at their young ages have seen so many different kinds of theater. They've mm-hmm. seen promenade theater and installation performance and dance pieces and concerts and straight mm-hmm. theater mm-hmm. Um, and puppetry and just the diff- the range of art forms that they've been exposed to mm-hmm. in that one place. Let alone all the other places right. in the city is is pretty um, exceptional. So, so when did you decide that? this was a, a profession that you wanted to pursue or theater was, is a, was a place for you. Oh, okay. So when I was in college, I went to a very small liberal arts school and in Spokane, I went to the big city into Spokane. And, um, I knew that I was going to do theater because that was my entire social circle in high school. And I couldn't imagine how I was going to make friends if I wasn't doing theater. So I immediately started auditioning and taking classes in the theater department. And um, I, I always assumed I would have to m- major in a, another area that was, you know, where I could get, you know, a, a quote, real job afterwards. And then realize in liberal arts, that's actually, there's no, there's none of that. <laughs> I guess you could get a teaching degree. Mm-hmm. But other than that, you know, what was I going to major in philosophy or literature? Like none of those are actually going to get you a real job. And my theater professor at the time she's like well theater artists like actually work 
like you actually get a job as a stage manager or lighting designer or an arts administrator that's this is a field that actually leads to real jobs and so I pitched it to my parents you know I they they weren't they were very supportive. They didn't, it wasn't like I had to ask permission or anything, but I knew mm-hmm. that I was going to get a little bit of pushback. And I said, you know, this is what I really want to do mm-hmm. is study theater. And it, it was just a BA program. It wasn't a BFA. So I didn't have mm-hmm. to, you know, audition for the a conservatory program, but, um, they were very, they, I think they already knew that I was going to major in theater before I did. Mm. And, um, so I did, I got a double degree in technical theater and performance, um, with minors in art and philosophy hmm. just to make myself super employable <laughs> and um and so I knew that that was an area that I wanted to go into and I, I will say that my school for being um very a very small program I had four other people in my graduating class in the theater department and oh, in the um, department in the department say, no in my department there were four of us <laughs> and um you know, Spokane doesn't have a ton of performing arts either. And so there wasn't a lot of, um, we didn't have a lot of, a large community to kind of intern at and volunteer other outside of the university itself. But um, I knew these are jobs that I can, you know, there are jobs that I can get. This mm-hmm. is how I'm going to work in the theater. And um, I may or may not be an actor, but there's, this is a whole field that I want to get into. And um, towards the end of that started realizing that I really wanted to be doing devised theater and I'd studied um Bowal and other applied theater mm. in my performance studies class and I knew that that was the area that I wanted to go into is community-based theater and devised theater separate from doing scripted Broadway theater so d- did you make any th- any work in college or was it beyond that um I did do one devised piece in college um we created a piece about body image that was all made from um different writings about bodies and we wrote monologues about our own bodies we collected quotes that we would hear people in our community saying about bodies and and wrote a whole piece about body image and we toured that to different schools and churches Mm -hmm. um it was a presbyterian school so we had a lot of churches and we toured all around um the Pacific Northwest doing on a, over a like four week period touring it um, and doing it for different student groups. And that was a very exciting process because I kind of realized as much as it's a great community building activity to make theater of any kind with a group of people, making devised theater is 10 times more that. Mm. that the kind of community and relationships that you build not only with your other castmates, but with the audience is so meaningful um and that was a really exciting I didn't even know what I don't think we used the word device I don't remember what we said mm. it was something that I'd never seen it before I'd never done it before it was really exciting yeah what when you are thinking about um making a new piece of theater because this is what you do mm-hmm. this is currently what you do we'll talk more about that what how do you start so with that, you know, you wanted yeah. to create something about body and body images and you started with quotes maybe. And then, mm-hmm. so what, how do you start now or, or does it vary? It varies show by show. <clears throat> I think in all of the shows that I make now, it's, it usually starts um, very visually for me. I think of one, I'll get one visual moment stuck in my head of an image that might be created on stage 
and that is like a, a, a seed that um, starts to sprout out into other ways. And sometimes even when we finish a show, we might realize that the initial visual image wasn't actually, didn't make the final cut into the show. Right. But that's usually where it starts for me. I'm My own style of creating theater has evolved to be very visual over the years. And I, I think of myself more as a visual storyteller now than I do even as a theater maker. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a lot of the play, the places that we start with with making and devising. Um, when we're working with a group of people in the devising process, that's how my own process is. Starting with a group of people in the devising process, we always start with um, a main question and, um, and a question and a, a context and work within that. So you graduate from college. Mm-hmm. Where do you go next? After college, I went to uh, moved to Scotland for six months. I got a temporary work visa and went and lived in Scotland. And I traveled there several times with um, school and with my family. And I knew I wanted to go back and live there for a little bit. And so I got a flat and a job waitressing. And on my days off, I would um, take the train around Scotland and do photography and um, and go to museums and see performances. And I went to the Edinburgh Fringe, and then. After that, I uh, moved back to the States and went, moved to Seattle and got an apprenticeship in the, at the Seattle Children's Theater. And, <coughs> pardon me, uh, I knew I was really interested in community-based theater and in devising and working, but I didn't know what those words were yet. So I, all I knew was I wanted to work in non-scripted theater. I wanted to make theater that was non-scripted. And I'd also had this idea when I was in college that, I knew I wanted to do something around education, but not teaching how to do theater. I was really interested in this idea that when you see a performance that is exciting and transcendent, whether it's a dance piece or um, a Shakespeare or a musical, you get that feeling as an audience member of excitement where you you almost want to leap on stage mm. along with the performers and you want to dance the things that they're dancing and say the lines that they're saying. And I thought, wouldn't that be cool if there was a thing where you could like visit students before what? or after the show and <laughs> help them do these things? I didn't know what that was. I thought I was like That's inventing. A- yes. <laughs> theater education but what, from mean, scratch like, what the heck you th- that is what you do that's what i do now but yeah, you know I that's do. so i was just thinking about like what what do i have in common with what lauren is saying right now like, that's what i do in my head right but i the fringe we should definitely talk about the fringe because mm-hmm. i had an opportunity to, to um go there last year mm-hmm. and i'm technically going for a different reason i'm going again in two weeks but um uh but that that thing, like when I went to grad school, I was like, I don't necessarily want to be a drama teacher, right. but I want to do something that has to do with theater and kids. Yeah. <laughs> and I really had no idea what that was. And then this idea of like seeing live theater, because the, the idea of needing to be on the, wanting to be on the stage, feeling the feelings, being so connected to a character you know, I just use the color purple as the example. Like the, I watched the entire audience and me have moments where we were feeling and being, we were Seely mm-hmm. and she as, uh, you know, was feeling us and like that, et- the energy that flows between audience and the actors on stage it's, or any performer on stage, it, it's, it can be so palpable, yeah. but 
because there's such a lot, like there isn't the same kind of experiences, I think, in, in many kids' lives, especially in New York City. But in general, I think the arts definitely in the, in the late 80s took a dive down. Mm-hmm. And now it's like, so now you've got par- people who are parents who don't necessarily understand the, ba- the value of the arts right. in kids' lives and how important that is that there is this sort of excitement about trying to figure out not how to prepare, right. but enhance and help uh, a kid have access or an access point into seeing something on stage right. and, and, and having some vocabulary or knowledge building around how do I process this mm-hmm. experience and, and in different ways. And that, that's what I'm really happy I get to do. It's so exciting. And it's, it is, it's like, I don't, I'm really not concerned as a teaching artist um, with creating a new generation of arts professionals. Mm-mm. There are other people who will do that and they're mm-hmm. going to do a great job. I'm so happy that those opportunities and those artists exist. Mm-hmm. But for me as a teaching artist, I don't, I don't want to teach kids about theater so that they can then make theater. Um, I think theater and dance um, and the performing arts are something that spark a, uh, this, buzzing of humanity inside of us and it's it's just about giving a release valve for that the teaching artistry when we see kids before and after a a performance or as they're helping to maybe devise their own performance in their classroom of of just giving an outlet for this this buzzing of questions and desire inside of us and especially with young kids we I remember so much as a young kid like just knowing I had to make something or say something or do something but I didn't know what it was and I wasn't I didn't have the language and I just thought like I need to make something right now but I didn't know how or what and that that's so much a part of childhood of discovering how to express yourself Mm. and how to find your voice and just being a, a human being in the world of just knowing how to connect the feelings that you have inside you with what you're putting out into the world and that that was something that I was really excited about uh, when, uh, when I finished my theater degree, I knew I said, I I don't want to just learn how to direct theater. I thought for a long time, that's what I wanted to do was be a director. And I realized I was like, no, I don't want to, I don't want to just direct theater. I want to make something that's really immediate and meaningful to the direct people who are there in the audience and on stage. Mm. Um, and so the, I, I started looking around and of course, um, I came across educational theater and teaching artistry because that was the only place that I could kind of find as a 22 year old that I could get a paid internship internship in theater and specifically in non-scripted theater was as a teaching artist apprentice and um, working in uh, making shows with young kids and exploring performing arts and I was particularly interested at the Seattle Children's Theater in, um, they had a story drama class and it was process drama and creative drama. And it was, I was like, oh, well, I mean, it's all preschoolers. So that part's kind of lame, but (laughs) I guess that, um, I guess I'll go do, I'll try that because at least it'll be, give me an idea for how to be doing this, this idea of process drama. I started reading and, um, you know, I found out who Cecily O'Neill was and I was like, I think that's what I want to do. I think I want to do process drama. Um, and I guess if I have to do that with preschoolers, we'll just start there and then <laughs> I'll move on and do process drama with older kids. Can you just talk a little bit about what process drama is and creative drama is? Sure. It's, it's, it's kind of like making theater without an audience. It's where all of the people in the room are in the story. There's no audience and it doesn't have a, it, there's no rehearsal. It's about creating a story in the moment. Um, so an example of a, of a, 
process drama that um, I remember from really early on was we would look at a picture of a boat and we would all look at it and think about who are the people who might be on this boat? Where do you think they might be going? How, you know, is, is there a captain? Is there someone below decks that we can't see in the picture? Um, and then we would arrange the room where we would all become the people on the boat and the room would become the boat. And we would start to think about, okay, well, what is this person saying? If we know that this is where we're going, how are they going to get there? Are they going to run into any problems along the way? And we would start to tell the story. I mean, it's just what we all do as kids. I mean, it's kind it's of just playing. It's playing. Yeah. And it's the, the possibility of like actually from a process drama, from asking all those questions, using a, a piece of pretext or, or mm-hmm. stimulus um, or a visual piece mm-hmm. that then you create this sort of world, this drama world that could ultimately be something that gets shared out. It could be. Right? Yes. But not, yeah. It's not often, but that is some place where you end up. That reminds me of a funny story from grad school, but we'll get to that later. I'm just okay. going to put a pin on that and come back to it. Um, so that th- I was really enamored with this idea of, of process drama. And especially because I knew as somebody who was really shy when I was a young kid that putting some, a young child up on stage and being like, act now, child, mm. be a performer. That's really intimidating. But being in process drama is something where you can get drawn in and play and have that imaginative, creative uh, reflective experience but without the pressure of having to be an actor mm-hmm. um, and that was really appealing I was very excited about that I had a mentor teaching artist who is just a fantastic creative drama specialist um, who I still learn from now uh, mm-hmm. her name is Jillian Jorgensen she is a teaching artist in Seattle and we still I follow her on Facebook and almost every week she puts something up about one of her classes that she's working on that just makes me go, of course, why didn't I think of that before? <laughs> she's just um, amazing. Is she related to Ian? She is. It's, a, it's his older sister. Oh. Yeah. Ian is somebody we used to work with. Yeah. That's another funny story about moving to New York and just the worlds that we have that are so small. Mm. Um, so I was work. I was, I did that for a summer and then we're continued working through the Seattle Children's Theater over the year. And, um, as I was doing all of this, realized like, yes, I love creative drama. I love process drama. That's all wonderful. Um, but oh man, I love preschoolers. <laughs> I love preschoolers <laughs> and started really kind of finding out that I had a, I had a, um, a real passion for working in, with early childhood and that that was that I, it, it's an age group that is so uninhibited and creative and fun. Um, and all of the things that when you're working with older students that you have to kind of strip away inhibitions and preconceptions you don't have to spend time doing that with preschoolers because they don't have any it's wonderful just love them so that was that was kind of my introduction to early childhood um and then after that I moved to Oregon because my husband was finishing law school in Oregon and uh did a little bit of teaching artist work down there and just really found that on the West Coast, the teaching artist field is sparse and not hugely professionalized. Um, it's, I think in Seattle, there were a lot of teaching artists that I had met who had been doing it for 10 or 15 years, and that was part of their practice and their career. Um, but outside of Seattle, it really was just the only options that were available were maybe teaching a weekend class at the community center or directing an after-school play um, or teaching at the YMCA and it wasn't I wasn't really I, I, I lost this the thread of um, of innovation mm. and 
kind of found that I, when, when I was in Oregon, I felt like I was doing everything that I knew how to do. And I didn't have anybody in the community who was going to teach me to be any better than I was. And I learned a lot during my year working at the Seattle Children's Theater, but I knew that there was a lot more out there. And even going to the library, um, you know, I was like, okay, so I have that one book by Cecily O'Neill. And that's about it. That was, that was basically all I could find. And, you know, this was in 2002. So there was an internet, but it was not a, it was not the internet we have today. Um, And I realized I was like, I need to go to grad school if I want to learn more about um, devised theater and community-based theater and process drama. I need to go to grad school and I need to find some people who know a lot more about this than I do and study because I can't, I just couldn't learn enough working independently and working on my own Mm. um, and reading really old books from the seventies. It just wasn't enough. So that was how I ended up in New York. So when did you start at uh, NYU? I started at NYU in 2005. So, so 2005, in 2002, you were like, I need to learn more. And so what happened between so I worked, the two, um, two or three years? I got married. I was teaching. Um, I was doing a lot of after-school drama programs. Mm-hmm. I was teaching some creative drama classes for preschoolers. I was in Oregon for two years. So I was in 2002 and 2003. I was in Seattle. And then between then and 2005, I was in Oregon, in Eugene, Oregon. So what what was your first... So like there was this... You just talked about your journey from Scotland and going back to the West Coast and being in Seattle Children's Theater mm-hmm. and knowing you wanted to do something around this idea of live performance and creating with kids, but not necessarily about professional artists and stuff. But was that something that was sort of in the back of your brain earlier or uh, like when, when, when was teaching sort of in your, I don't um, think, I think when I started working at the Seattle children's theater, I think I, I think I was like, well, I'll do this teaching artist thing until I can figure out how to be a director of devised theater. I I was like, I really, really want to do is direct devised theater. Mm -hmm. And this is the closest I'm going to get for now. So until I kind of, and you know, as a young professional, especially like if you're not interested in just auditioning and performing in scripted shows, I mean, what do you do? Where there's no, nobody's going to just give you a job being like, here, direct a show. I mean, that's just, (laughs) it's not, there, there were really very, very few opportunities to be working Mm -hmm. besides, um, teaching young kids. And so it was an easy way to be working. Um, in the theater and I was also still you know I was a barista and right. doing other things too but that but was then you had this discovery because you weren't initially excited about right. working with uh, preschoolers and then it was like and I realized oh wait no I dope. love this yeah um but when I when I went to grad school I did I was also I didn't think I was going to do early childhood at all when I went to grad school I really wanted to be working with older like high school and college age students and doing directing and devising um in community settings. And I, I thought, well, you know, if I have to work in schools or if I have to, you know, do the early childhood thing, the mommy and me classes more, I'll just do that. Cause you know, that seems to, that those were the jobs that were open, mm. but it wasn't, um, I really was focused on making device theater with older students and then got to grad school and realized I wasn't that good at that. I'm better at making, I'm better at working with young kids and actually it makes me, it makes me happier. I'm better yeah. at it. Um, I get it. I'm, I'm, I am more passionate about it. I think mm. there's a lot more opportunity for me for innovation and, yeah. and pushing myself. Um, I'm, I'm excited to get 
to where we're going. Mm -hmm. So, um, so we went to the same program. You started, Mm -hmm. um, I graduated. I was at the Gallatin school. So, right. Okay. So we went to the same school. We went to the same university. Yes. What was your, what did you, how did you create your, um, experience at Gallatin? What was it? So Gallatin's a school of individualized study and I had 36 credits and I knew I wanted to do community-based theater. And when I started there, I think I probably could have just done the educational theater program. Um, but I was really into this idea of, I, I wanted to go to Gallatin because I wanted to take performance studies classes at Tisch. And I wanted to work with the creative arts team. Right. So I applied. Mm-hmm. And then I had to defer my enrollment for a year because oh. uh, I got married and had to wait for my husband to finish law school. Mm-hmm. So I deferred my enrollment and I showed up at Gallatin. I was like, I'm ready to go. And then Kat wasn't there anymore. They so, moved in that funny year. Funny story. Haha. When I, I, was, I went to theater um, and I had auditioned to be a teaching artist at creative arts team. Mm-hmm. Did not get it. And ended up going on a completely different path, mainly because I, I did not have a clue what a teaching artist was, right. but I knew I, I knew I had been teaching up until that point. But, you know, I got a second round, which was, you know, I was pretty proud of, but mm-hmm. didn't didn't go much further than that. And um, it's just interesting because then I ended up being more on the theater side as yeah. opposed to a youth theater or, you know, working so not around a piece of art necessarily. Mm-hmm. I ended up working for Roundabout as a teaching artist instead. So it's just interesting where paths go. So yeah. you're right. So Creative Arts team had moved to um, creating their own, right? Their own. Yeah, they went to CUNY into the their. It wasn't a it wasn't a graduate program. It was a certificate program at the time. Mm. And I managed to convince my advisor at Gallatin to let me take a bunch of classes from the Creative Arts team. Um, certificate course and transfer those into NYU, which not only saved me some dollars, yeah, man. Uh, it also gave me an opportunity to work with Helen and Chris and learn a lot that I had been hoping to learn. I'd, I'd really, I'd, I'd gone to Gallatin because I wanted to be a part of the, you know, the apprenticeship that they had, um, working really directly with the company. But mm-hmm. I learned a ton doing the coursework from them, and it was, and actually probably got more involved in the educational theater department because cat wasn't an option at that time. So the, um, just, we, we name dropped a few people that we haven't yes. explained. So you said Cecily O'Neill, who I love. Mm-hmm. Um, I know. And after reading her books for so many years, I finally got to meet her at NYU, which yeah. was wonderful. She came and did some guest. She did guest some guests. I, I, the first time I met her was, um, when we did the London study abroad program mm-hmm. and she did a two day process drama with us that, some people remember differently than I do. So some of the people that I went with, they were really like upset with her <laughs> because at some point she sort of was like, we went off the rails. We were at the, it was, we did, we totally took it off the rails and she was like, I need to take a moment. I don't, I don't know where to go next. Mm-hmm. I appreciated that in the moment where I was like, wow. And it was a real, it was a really interesting model for me where it's like, Oh, you don't have to be perfect. You don't know what's going on and just be transparent about it with everybody right. and say, we're going to pause here. I'm going to do some thinking. We're going to come back. Either it was after lunch or it was the next day. I don't remember mm-hmm. that. Those kinds of details escape always me. But, um, but I like that. And when I talk to other people, uh, other colleagues, my contemporaries, they say, I was so mad at her. Like, how could she do? It's like, what, what? No, it was great. 
Anyway. That level of transparency. I learned that. I've learned a lot from people like Mm -hmm. in our field, like Jonathan Neelans, who is also another practitioner of process drama and, and is big on like education equals empowerment. Um, and their styles are very different. Cecily and, and Jonathan, he's a little bit more cerebral, I think. He is. He's He has a lot. I think Cecily focuses a lot on the drama of the moment. Yeah, and it does and not. He, it's not about safety for her. Right. And for her, <laughs> he focuses so much on the reflection of mm-hmm. the drama mm-hmm. and really going into the, like, just peeling the skin off whatever happened yeah. and getting into he the likes heart of to it. challenge your yeah. thinking right mm-hmm. and she wants to yeah go into the drama and like create big conflict and and by almost any means necessary it yeah. feels like you know so she will push and what comes out on both on um, from both things like i've been in process dramas with them and been like so like uh surprised and um a little bit shocked and awed on like the immense amount of seriousness that people take it in because of how they set it up Mm -hmm. and then on top of it because most of the work that i've seen with with her more recently has been with with our teaching artists who are in and of themselves fantastic artists right so they take it to a whole new level in terms of the output or the response um to the point where i remember jonathan being working with one of like the, one of the best actresses I've ever seen as one of our teaching artists. And she pushed him to a place where he had to stop because he, he was like, you've given me no, I have no place to go here. Mm. And so he like stormed out as the character came back and was like, so I don't know if anybody realized again, transparency. I don't know if everybody realized that I had no, like, as the father, I had no, no other choice, but to storm out. Like, so I couldn't right. keep the drama going. Right. And that was because of her and whatever she in, improvised and mm-hmm. pride kept pushing back at him. It was amazing, amazing moments. And then with Cecily, <laughs> it was uh, people who had come back from war. And oh god, it was that was in these. I mean, these dramas. I these <laughs> process dramas that I've gone through 10, 15 years ago. That I remember those more than I remember plays that I saw at that time. And mm-hmm. I think that was one of the things that I loved about that as an art form is the kind of the, the empathy and emotional engagement that happens through creative drama unlocks a kind of learning that, that is so powerful and profound. And just on a, on a really just like academic level that you remember more, you remember if you do a, if you do a process drama about the civil war, you're going to remember some stuff about the civil war. And that kind of that, as a learning tool is really powerful and is an empathetic tool of the kind of, 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 of being able to watch and analyze and dig into what motivates us and how we can all be in a similar situation and respond differently. And I, I remember times with uh, Jonathan Neelans of just saying like, okay, we've all watched this. We've all seen it now. And then thought tracking, what is the response of all the other people who are in the room? Now I want you to remember, imagine that you were a member of the court observing this happened between the king and the queen what were you thinking and being able to really realize like everybody in the room has a different perspective mm-hmm. and those kinds of it's it, you know it's, it's human education and that that level of empathy and understanding and listening to other people is so incredibly profound and for me that that's the that's the a, a real cornerstone of why 
I want to be an artist is to create those moments for people. I also got to work when I was in, um, in grad school, got to do an intensive with Dorothy Hethkett when uh-huh. she, the last time she was mm. in New York. And that was, I mean, she has a completely different style from either Jonathan or Cecily. Right. And, and yet so deliberate and meaningful mm. and reflective and powerful for the kids who are involved. And that was um, amazing to watch her work because she's such a pioneer of that so art she form. is the pioneer so she's Cecily, the pioneer yeah, yeah. the pioneer Cecily, Cecily and Jonathan studied at her exactly, feet exactly yes. studied at her feet and actually like Cecily ended up inheriting something from her when she passed away but she ended up giving it back to her daughter it was mm. um but that and that so that's how close they were but the um if you look at have you ever seen three looms three yeah, three looms. I think I three think th- so. three looms waiting. Mm-mm. So there's it's a documentary on her in the seventies. Ooh, to check or, that out. Or late sixties into the seventies. It's fascinating, and she basically is like, I don't know, what are we gonna do today? I'm not joking. She's like, eh, what are we? What shall we do today? And then they end these kids. He's like, these kids can't be older than like nine or ten, mm-hmm. and they end up making this whole drama about war. And um and it seems like it's World War Two. It seems like like the Great War, and uh, or it could, yeah, it seems like that's what it is. But like that might be the. But she doesn't come in with anything. She doesn't mm-hmm. have any pretext. She literally says, "So, what are we gonna do today with these yeah. kids?" And then there's this whole moment where the there's like um prisoner of war. They've captured one group of of has captured another group, and like they have these prisoners, and they have to decide what to do with the prisoners. Mm-hmm. Nine ten, and they are like who who do you know what do you do you know and they're like pressing but she had set up these parameters that like there was not gonna be any physical violence it was all gonna be like a conversation and what and this guy who was representing the others had to decide whether he was gonna tell them the secrets mm. right so he and he eventually he like didn't he wouldn't it's real it's like so intense yeah and of course they don't show every single like moment. So you don't actually know exactly how they got, she got them there. But the fact that they got there yeah. to this really elevated way of thinking and behaving and that empathy that you're talking about, it's, it's incredible. She's incredible. One of the things that I learned from Dorothy Hethkett that still stays with me every time I read any of her writings or kind of think about her work is the enormous respect with which she in which she holds children holds mm-hmm. children and very young children mm-hmm. that she doesn't talk down to them mm-hmm. she doesn't think well I need to bring this in because they otherwise they won't understand x y or z she treats children with such a wholeness and respect and demands so much from mm-hmm. them in their own participation it really is a different way of thinking about young kids than I I um had seen in and especially because I was starting to work a lot with young kids during that time and and kind of hearkening back to that uh, to not quite early childhood but early elementary um just the the level of seriousness with which she, she takes that age group and that she allows them to take themselves is really amazing mm-hmm. Yeah, I highly recommend reading her her work and seeing that documentary. I actually use it as as a part of 
uh, the course that I teach at NYU, the teaching artist, because she's sort of, in my opinion, the first person mm-hmm. who like is going into different communities. Most of what she, they were showing was school communities, but they were also working with um, kids who um, were prof- had um, some sort of profound disability, um, whether it was physical or mental. Um, and that was a really, that's a really interesting segment. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, 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 you know, uh, everybody sort of stems in that world. And then there's Chris and Helen, a creative arts team. They have two different focuses. Mm-hmm. And so how did you start, you said that you took classes with them. Is that right? I did. Yeah. I took a, um, youth theater devising class with Helen. And then I took, um, theater of the oppressed class with Chris. I took two, two youth theater devising classes with Helen actually, I think. And one, and then the, um, theater of the oppressed class with Chris fine. Um, I also got to take, uh, a week long intensive with Augusto and Julian Boal when they were in the city before Augusto passed away. And it, that was during the same period of time. And it just, these were all the things where I like, you know, I'd been in Oregon and I was like, I don't know, I think I want to do something with theater. And then to come to New York and, and have all of these people who are so foundational to the field intersecting in this city um, and being in a community of people who dig so deeply into these questions. And, mm-hmm. and it really was, um, I, I didn't even know what I was getting into and 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 how lucky I was to have those opportunities. It, it was something that I, do, that I just wouldn't have ever had on the West Coast. Yeah. Can you talk um, Augusta Bilal, Julian oh Bilal? Oh, Augusto. I, I mean, I th- well, so Theater of the Oppressed and reading Theater of the Oppressed was like, in, when I was in undergrad was the first – that and in addition to making a devised theater piece, that was the first idea that I that I had of the idea of theater for social justice, and not just theater for social justice, but theater for community building, theater mm-hmm. for um, that directly addresses the concerns of the community that are there, and theater that is immediate and impactful and important and real. Um, and so when I had read about this, I was like, yes, this is what I want to do. I want to make theater that is that is like you know in the room that's what that's that is uh that that has that sense of immediacy and importance and and had studied you know in in the first year of grad school had done a a ton of reading um about uh Boal's work and you know um Frere and and all of the kind of applied theater practitioners um because that was a, a you know an area that I was doing my my thesis work in. Mm -hmm. And then when I got to actually work with him, I was like, this guy's crazy. He's so, I mean, he's such a, a personality. Like I had kind of expected him to be like Dorothy Hethkett, who was just this like figure who is so warm and embracing and like brings everyone into this like womb, like feeling in the room. And he is hard. He challenges people and he pushes people and he doesn't, uh, he, he did, he wouldn't, he wouldn't allow for, easy answers and if he thought you were doing it wrong he'd just tell you you were doing it wrong and you know after a year and a half of being immersed in in like progressive pedagogy I'm like you can't tell people they're doing things wrong but you can if you're a goose to and I really um it was a you know it was a period in which I was became aware in a huge way of um you know privilege in and especially being a white um New Yorker and a white transplant New Yorker of just kind of the, um, you know, I'd grown up in an entirely white world in, in the, in the Northwest and, 
and just kind of becoming aware of like the the privilege that I took into the room and the responsibility that goes along with mm-hmm. that. And as an arts educator who's who you know I was teaching at the New Victory, I started teaching at the New Victory at this time, and and the other places I was teaching as well. Like I was a lot of times going into communities of color in schools where I would be the only white person in the room and just that kind and I think that working with um Augusto and Julian and Boal really was was a gave me a lot of language and understanding for that role and the responsibility that comes with it Mm. um and it's always helpful to just like have people call you on your shit it's good yeah yeah I, I I feel really honored that I got to work with him briefly so so just thinking like uh i I actually want to dig a little bit into that so i'm just going to put a pause on privilege Mm, and there's a that's a whole whole conversation yeah so we're gonna we're gonna talk about that we're going there lauren good but i have a i have a a question so in new york city there mm-hmm. are three pretty major programs if you're interested in, in educational theater in some yeah. capacity, right? So there's NYU, which is where you and I went, mm-hmm. either at Gallatin and making your own or the educational theater department. And actually at Steinhardt, there's multiple arts programs that have education, right. so dance education, music education, um, et cetera. Um, CUNY, uh, SUNY, SUNY, I'm sorry, uh, City College, mm-hmm. uh, which has an, is called Educational Theater and, and has multiple tracks for certification for teachers who um, are already theater teachers and, yeah. and need to get their master's because New York State uh, requires that teachers have a master's degree um, for people who are interested in, in being a teaching artist or um, an arts administrator. And then there's the MA Applied, MA in Applied Theater mm-hmm. at CUNY, a part of the, of the Graduate Center. Is that right? What is it? What is it? Schools for professional studies. Thank you, Ben, um, who graduated from that program. So I have a question. Yes. If you were to be going into grad school now, oh, hmm. what would, would I do? you make a different choice? Would you still go to Gallatin? No. It's too much money. I am. I, it's too, NYU is too expensive. It's too expensive for arts practitioners. I got a really great education there. I love the time that I spent there. I got a great education Mm -hmm. and it opened a lot of doors for me, but I think that those same doors can be opened at those two other programs because both of those programs are just as well connected as the educational theater Mm -hmm. program. And so that kind of opening doors into the professional world, you can get for a lot less money. Mm -hmm. Um, that's a really, I don't know which one I would go to. I think if I was applying at the, t- if those three programs had been available mm-hmm. at that time, which they weren't, you know, NYU was the only game mm-hmm. in town. Mm-hmm. Um, I probably, I think the applied theater program would have been where I had, would have sought out um, because that was really where my heart was when I started grad school. Now I don't, I don't know because I, um, I, I don't work in applied theater. So I, I devise theater as a theater artist, but it's not applied theater. I devise performance, you know, like staged theater. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I don't know, maybe, I don't know. I don't know where I would go. I think if I had to spend that 80 grand over again, I think I'd get an MFA. Really? Mm-hmm. In? I don't know. Oh. This is tricky. I don't mm-hmm. know. I, I mean, um, Maybe puppetry. 
the yeah the or program in, uh, in Hawaii. No, um, the the what is it? Yukon. Mm. Yeah, or I mean, I'm really uh, I'm interested in the Brooklyn College. has got the multidisciplinary performance mm-hmm. program. I, I'm really Pima. Yeah, super interested in that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's really hard to say. I don't regret my. I don't. I I don't have any regrets about NYU or the regret or the education I got there. Other than to work as a theater artist means that you can't afford an eighty thousand dollar degree. Well, so what I think is very interesting. So the educational theater department at NYU was started in nineteen sixty six. It seems like because they just celebrated their fiftieth anniversary right. um, by Noel. Uh, Lowell and Nancy and we we've talked about them in a different episode so that's okay Mm, we don't have to go too deep into that but what it says to me is that if if in two so that started in 1966 Mm -hmm. there was another there is another program that focuses on theater for young audiences production University of Arizona Mm -hmm. and now Emerson has a theater and education Um, department so and then UT Austin does okay yeah TYA as well yeah so just thinking about New York City for mm-hmm. just a second because I don't really know the the national landscape right. as well in 2005 right you said you mm-hmm. went uh, 2005 so that at that point is 40 years yeah the NYU was still the only one that had an educational theater department and yeah. then by 2010 even I mean, yeah, now there's a lot more there are there are three main three. options and then po- York, and right. then and then the idea of like then there's brooklyn college as well so so mm-hmm. now there's an end now there's hunter college there's a there's a dance right. education there so right so the growth in a, a fairly short mm-hmm. amount of time within one decade right? That decade is 10 years (laughs) within one decade or less than a decade. Mm -hmm. There are now multiple programs to choose from. Most of which are from the CUNY system, which is a, which is a Mm -hmm. city uh, university of New York. Um, you know, so the, the costs are, are, are Mm -hmm. more manageable, I would say. NYU though has prestige. Yes. Right. And those doors. So like, right. I don't think, I think maybe because some of the people who work for uh, those other uh, universities like Shoba and Jennifer, they went to NYU. Yeah. They have some connections. Mm-hmm. Cecily, I know, has worked work with their City College students. Mm-hmm. Um, but like where you, you see what I'm saying? Well, like, the, so there's this, this like yes. interesting political diplomacy it's that like, is happening is, around competition on the university level, which I don't, I'm not engaged in that conversation in any way. I don't necessarily no, want there to is be, a, but there's also like, so I chose NYU over Emerson. I got an accepted oh, to both interesting. and I chose NYU because I didn't plan on staying in New York. And I was like, if I'm coming back to Seattle or Portland, uh-huh. NYU travels like I don't need to just have connections in New York City. I wasn't planning on working in in New York City. I needed a name that would legitimize what I did. Mm. And um, in that sense, like it really felt like a great investment. And it was. I'm just, you know, 10 years after the fact. Still paying. Not even close to paying that. I have I've one of my four that I am close to finishing. Yeah. One of the four. And I don't, I honestly, I don't make a lot of money. I mean, my, my loans are getting paid off because I'm, I am married to somebody who has a stable income and I can mm. afford to faff about making children's theater. Faff about. Faff about. No. You heard me. I, I do not accept your faff. <laughs> we'll get to the economics of teaching artistry and working as an artist. That, <laughs> that'll be chapter four. <laughs> but 
it's, you know, it is something, it's a huge investment. Yeah. And I do think, you know, I tell when I meet young teaching artists who are saying, should I go and get this graduate degree or that graduate degree? You know, one of the things that I've said is I have learned as much about being a teaching artist and the pedagogy of being a teaching artist from working at the New Victory as I have from my graduate program. Mm. And that's because I, and, and other places as well, you know, when my early teaching career, I taught at a lot of places and they invested in professional development for their artists. And I learned a lot about, um, pedagogy and practice mm. as a professional and I think that there is a real value to the professional training that doesn't put such an anchor around your ankle in the kinds of work that you want to do. Mm. Um, and that's, I think it's, um, it's, a, it's a really strong consideration to have to ask yourself is, and that's part of, you know, it comes back to that privilege question too. Like, can you afford to be paying $900 a month for the next 20 years? Can you afford that? I, that's 900 it's a that's a lot it's a lot of money that's a lot of money and yeah you know, when i mean when you start especially when you graduate and you're you're thinking you're going to be making a certain amount of money and right. you go into nonprofit and you're making like half of that right and and then you have rent and your life on top of that so some right. of us me had multiple jobs yeah. knowing that working for an organization as i do at the time, at, you know, coming in as an entry level, it, it was going, it's all worth it. Here mm-hmm. is an organization that is wanting to, to expand its portfolio and I have a chance to be able to help that right. expansion. Oh yeah, you know I'm going to be a part of that. Oh right, I have student loans that are not in, in, inconsequential. Right. So how, you know, how, how do you, do, you do, how do you balance that? Also the federal government does repay your mm-hmm. student loans if you work in a nonprofit for 10 years, but not if you're a teaching artist, not you have to work you full, have to full time, time for a non-for-profit But you also have to be making under a certain amount of money. And some of us don't. Yeah. Well, it's hard to make under that amount in New York city and actually yeah. just have like a working, like living wage. Yeah, exactly. It's, you know, it's a, it's a complicated. And it's after a certain amount of time. Yeah. So by the time, if you are working for 10 years in nonprofit and you're good at your job, you're not going to be making right. the, the limit or whatever the, yeah. the maximum is. You're going right. to be above that. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it, there's a lot of things that are, that make it really difficult. And I think, um, I think it's possible. I, I don't know. It's hard because I, I think that there's a, there's a lot to be gained from having a graduate degree. And I gained a lot, you know, as somebody who wasn't working in New York Mm -hmm. and that within two years of being here, I felt like I knew everyone in the city. I also, I was working for the New York city arts and education Roundtable. I was Mm -hmm. working for the new victory and it felt like that program and, and the, and the different kinds of opportunities I was able to take advantage of in the city opened up a lot of doors for me. Um, that being said, I work with a lot of teaching artists and artists who don't have graduate degrees and are just as exceptional of teaching artists mm-hmm. and doing really well in their fields and don't have to pay off that degree. Right. So it's, a, it's, I but I have also known that there have been teaching artists who were working, 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 doing really well, and then decided to go. So some of them had a bachelor's, but not a master's. Yeah. And they decide to go not necessarily in education, but in furthering their artist right. uh, endeavors and, and, being able to take new leaps. So there have been people who went through the Brooklyn, uh, Brooklyn college program, mm-hmm. either in playwriting or the performing arts or, uh, 
uh, or acting MFA. Yeah. So all getting MFAs and where they are now versus where they were prior yes. are hugely different yeah. and, and like really exciting and an stellar MFA. way. But that's an MFA. <laughs> but that's You're right. an MFA. I mean, there's a certain, <laughs> but that's what I'm saying. I'm right. just saying that there right. are still artists who regardless of what they are, what they want to pursue that yeah. do feel like academia is a, a, or getting a degree, whether it's an MFA or an MA or yeah. some sort of terminal degree that, that, that is what takes you to a new level. It is. And I, when I started graduate school, I thought I was going to get a PhD. That was kind of my, I'm a real, you know, I'm a very ambitious person. Some, usually it's in a good way. Sometimes it's not. And it was one of those, I'm like, well, if there's a PhD, I'm going to get one. Like I don't stop until I get to the top. That's what I'm going to do. And then I got there and I realized I like, going through the thesis process in the IRB, I was like, oh my God, I don't want to spend the rest of my life in academia. Well, Not to mention, also... I definitely can't afford that. Well, yeah, <laughs> but, the, but, but there's also in my, and this is just my opinion. I mean, now that I know, because when I started the MA program, I definitely was like, oh, there's a PhD program. Maybe what I, because I, I was still trying to figure it out. I was like, I do not want to work in a classroom. I'm not a classroom teacher. That's not what I want. I do want to work in this world getting a PhD would open a whole lot of doors that I don't yeah. even know exist yeah. at this point. Um, and somebody said, well, you know, if you get a PhD, that's then you want to work in uh, the university level. And I was like, mm, do I know? Oh. I don't know if that's it. And so, so theater working for a theater was definitely the thing that made me most happy. And I'd worked for theaters in multiple capacities. Mm-hmm. Um, and so once I figured that out, I was like, oh, I guess I, I still had the PhD in the back of my head and I would talk about it every once in a while. And it was it was less about wanting to work on the university level, more about maybe like thinking towards other endeavors. Yeah. Um, but then I realized that I'm a practitioner. PhD. I'm vigorously nodding. You can't see that yeah, on the podcast. Yeah, you I'm are. Like, I'm, yeah. a, I'm a doer. I do mm-hmm. things and I make things happen. And I that that is where I thrive. That is mm-hmm. where I do the best work and have the best contributions. A PhD is not necessarily the way I should be going yeah, because it's very <laughs> more on the intellectual and theoretical levels. That is so uninteresting to me, though I appreciate the people who do that so much. But I remember sitting in on this. I remember sitting and I was picking up somebody. I think I was picking up Cecily. We were going to have dinner or something. And she was doing um, a presentation for the PhD students uh, as part of their whatever their monthly meeting is, whatever that's called. And I and people were talking about their different research projects and they all do research and, and they all have a project that they're doing on their their dissertation. Right. Um, and they have to do it by IRB. There's so many na- words that you've just dropped that like so- somebody's gonna be like, what is that? We need to f- go back a little bit and talk about those. But um, it's all just academic. It's hoops. All, that's yeah. all. So that's the all IRB it is, is... Uh, the, in, in institutional board of wait, hold on. Um, ben, you know, review board. Internal review, internal review board. board. So yeah. if you're doing research, so any research, you have to go through subjects. this, right? <laughs> so to basically just to do theater with children, yeah. you have to go th- and oh god, minors especially minors. You have to go through this huge review process. Mm-hmm. And I had uh, we, I, we could do a whole podcast episode just on my thesis project. Oh, we we can, and we we certainly can. That's chapter five. Well, no, it's chronologically it should be now. It was just it was a disaster. <laughs> it was a disaster, and you know, mm-hmm. it wasn't a good project. But I was locked into it because I'd already like gone through IRB, paid my tuition. I had to graduate. Mm-hmm. And it was a project that never should have happened. And it was a to- it was just a disaster. I managed to pull it out by writing a pretty decent paper about why it was a disaster. 
which Helen White still makes her grad students read. Did you have to read it, Ben? Yeah, it's a disaster. <laughs> and so now every like up and coming teaching artist through the applied theater field wow. knows me as the person who like failed wow, miserably in are... this project. That's crazy. Yeah. And k- kind of cool. Sure. Whatever. Maybe. I mean, you're, yes. you're well known for, for failing, but look where you are now. Yeah. Well, you and, know, I, and even now, I, I wish I could write a... back and rewrite why I was a failure because I was, <laughs> I even like, I wrote it too close to like really understand why I had failed. You should put an addendum on it. Maybe I shall. That'll be my publishing process. Maybe. Maybe I, I mean, I, I will admit I did not have a, a, a thesis, so I did not go through that process. But sitting in that room with the PhD and they were talking the candidates and they were talking about their different research projects. I just had this moment. I, I you know, at that point, I think I'm pretty sure I was director or at least associate director. So I was, I'd been at the New Vic for quite some time. I, I know and I'm I am also an adjunct there and I feel very connected to the the program. But sitting in that room, I just had a moment of being like, do you all really think that your project, your research is going to do anything? Do not talk about, but do anything. And I just, there was a self, self importance that was happening in the, and, 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 uh, and boy, oh boy, was it not very diverse. And so I just had this moment of like, what the F man? Yeah. Oof, I am not this is not me this is not my world yeah. it, at that level there is an EDD yeah a doctorate of education yeah. that is more practical based but I I've got a long list of I I, I very emphatically said I should you shouldn't spend money in grad school that being said mm. I've recently I've been like I should get like I should get a master's in early childhood education like I should learn more I about early childhood so much though. I should get an MFA like these are things that it would be great to get. I'm not going to because I'm too old and I have kids and I have to pay for their college soon. Right. So I'm not going to pay for another one for me, but right. it there, there's a lot out there. And one of the, one of the things that I did learn in grad school, despite having all these really great, um, you know, that like I got to work a, a week with Dorothy Etcott and a week with Augusta Boal. And, you know, I had these kind of spotlight moments that were deeply impactful, but I also had only 36 credits on which to graduate. And it's not really enough time to go very deeply no. into something that, is going to turn into a lifetime of practice. And that's why I say, like, I, I do think if you're the kind of person who can be really intentional about your own education and look for a lot of those opportunities, I didn't have to be in grad school to do them. I could yeah. have just signed up to do them in, you know, as yeah. a, as a practitioner and that you can take responsibility for your own learning and work under very, very, um, exceptional practitioners and learn from them Mm. without having to be in a grad school program. That's one of the things that I love about our field is that because it is growing very rapidly, it's not, there's more than one path to success. There's more than one path Mm -hmm. to excellence and, um, and learning. And that's something that I, I really appreciate about being in a growing field. Thank you for listening to Episode 7, Act 1 of Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body, Lauren Jost, Theater as Human Education. Join us next time for Act 2. Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body is edited and produced by Ben Weber. Christopher Totten is the creative content manager. John L. Waldman wrote and performed the theme song. Tim Palin designed the logo. Visit us at www.teachingartistry.org. 
Follow us on Twitter at TA underscore artistry. Like our page on Facebook. Listen to us on SoundCloud. Subscribe and rate us on iTunes. And be sure to share this podcast with all the teaching artists in your life. Let's start it up now. Let's start it up now. Let's start it up now. Ooh.